Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Tricia Kuffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books and Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. Today's guest, I have a very special guest for you. It is Beyond Mobility, Planning Cities for People and Places by Robert Cervero, Eric, say your name again. Uh, Eric Guerra and Robert Cervero. Robert Severo and Stefan Al. Sorry, I just want to say it right. Uh, Published by by Ireland Press in 2017. Good evening, gentlemen. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Uh, So uh, let's start with uh, Eric. Can you tell the audience about yourself? Uh, Sure. I'm an associate professor of city and regional planning at the University of uh, Pennsylvania. I I teach classes on uh, statistical methods, quantitative methods of planning, and uh, transportation planning. And most of my research um, is kind of looking at the intersection of how cities are structured, um, transportation policy, and then how people choose to travel and get around. Um, I do roughly half of my work in the United States and about half of my work outside of it, uh, particularly in, in Latin America. Okay, Stefan? Yeah, I'm Stefan L. I'm a senior associate principal at the global design firm uh, KPF, based in New York, but we have offices worldwide. Uh, we do um, architecture, but also urban design, uh, a lot of master planning, transit-oriented development, uh, and sometimes very large buildings uh, that we then get to integrate in, in transport infrastructure. So we've done a lot of buildings uh, built on top of subway stations, train stations, sort of the quintessential DOD or transit-oriented development type of work. Uh, and our work uh, is, uh, is really global. Uh, in fact, a lot of it is in Asia. But uh, we also do a lot here uh, in New York and the United States and, and Europe. Uh, well, that sounds fascinating. So what was your motivation for writing this book? We'll start with Eric. Uh, sure. Um, you know, it, it, in many ways, it, it's a little bit uh, unfortunate that, that Robert couldn't be here. Um, because in many ways, this, this book is his brain, brainchild. Um, and uh, I guess my, my primary motivation is we were, we were actually meeting and, and uh, talking after a conference at Berkeley and, and kind of the, the main topics and themes of the books came up. And uh, Robert was really looking to get some input from, um, from an urban designer in particular. And we, we were talking about the book and, and um, kind of mentioned that Stefan would be a great fit for this and, and uh, just wound up, you know, based on some conversations that we'd all had uh, that we, you know, chose to work on it together. Uh, I think we probably all came at it from slightly different uh, motivations for me, uh, uh, from each other. And for, for me, I think it, it was pretty exciting to be able to uh, work on a project that's maybe targeted at a, at a larger audience than, than um, kind of many of the, the more academic papers that I work on. And uh, so, yeah, that, that was really exciting. And then I know and I enjoy working with, with Robert and Stefan. So you know, great kind of professional and, and personal motivations. 
Okay, Stefan, why did you want to write this book? Well, uh, well, first of all, it was great to work with uh, Eric, who I've known for uh, for a long time, as also, as well as uh, Bob Severa. We were all at Berkeley at some point uh, in our lives, and uh, a lot of the kind of thinking is really uh, kind of credited to that uh, to that school, which has a history of, of thinking about uh, mobility and urban de- urban design from a very kind of progressive standpoint. And the second reason really for me was that the thesis of the book going kind of beyond mobility and how transportation planners uh, are starting to think not just about optimizing kind of throughputs for vehicles, but thinking more broadly about other things like urban design, like diversity, like accessibility. Uh, That thesis I really, really uh, liked. Uh, So it was a... A truly unique opportunity for me as an urban designer to kind of collaborate uh, with people who are more kind of in the transportation field uh, and come up with a with a thesis that really thought beyond kind of traditional uh, boundaries um, and then the traditional disciplines like transportation and, and urban design and instead saying that well if we want to make the best possible cities we should think about uh, these fields coherently uh, instead of as, uh, as separate. So uh, let's start with uh, a little bit of devil's advocate. What's, uh, what's wrong with our cities and our mobility and um, why are they not working? Well, I, I think I could respond to that. I, I, th- I think they, they do work for, for certain things and then they, they work a little bit less well for others. So, I think our transportation systems work relatively well for kind of allowing people to get from from point A to point B, uh, but we've done so in a pretty expensive and costly manner by by building kind of ever larger um, uh, roadway networks, roadway systems, highways, uh, bigger parking lots, and kind of the end result, the net result of all these decisions about where to build roads. Uh, how to regulate parking is that uh, we, we kind of lost A to B along the way. So we, we can get from A to B, but A and B are further apart. Uh, and, and also they, they tend to be a little less nice. Um, so, you know, one of the main theses of the book is actually to focus more on place and less on moving between places. At, at the end of the day, we, we really care about transportation for, for accessing other activities uh, so we shouldn't be sacrificing those activities, those spaces, in order to have kind of faster and, and freer movement. And I guess the, the, the follow-up point is that our, our current mobility system, uh, you know, does pretty well at getting, you know, people from point A to point B with the caveat that we've sacrificed the quality of, of space in point A and point B. Uh, but there are also pretty big uh, environmental and social costs. Um, the transportation sector is one of the largest uh, greenhouse gas emitters. Uh, it's one of the, the kind of biggest killers of, of human beings. Um, it's the leading killer of young, healthy people. Uh, so there, there are a lot of kind of social costs and, and costs if you look kind of beyond uh, the mobility aspect of, of travel that, that the transportation system kind of burdens society with. That's a good point, and and if you you know look at some of the numbers, so for instance, in in two thousand ten, uh, there were one point two million traffic fatalities, 
and on top of that, 3 million deaths related to air pollution um, that can be uh, traced back to transportation. So that's a massive uh, human as well as economic cost. And uh, those are things we don't really kind of think about uh, very often, but uh, if if you do, and and if you start to take into the account kind of the the social and economic cost of kind of improving mobility, then uh, it becomes an entirely different uh, different kind of paradigm. And one one way we thought about this, and I I really like uh, how you know Bob helped framing this, was uh, moving beyond mobility and instead thinking about access or accessibility. I mean, that's the reason people move to cities, right? Because you have access to uh, different types of services. You have access to other people, uh, places, uh, things to do. Uh, but if you, if you kind of unpack that, what, what is access? How can we improve it? It's fundamentally an, an equation that depends on two things. One is mobility, right? You can increase your access by moving uh, somewhere. And you can, if you move faster, then you can uh, access more things. But the other hand, uh, the other part of the equation is proximity. Right? If you're simply very close to other activities, uh, if you uh, live in an area that is high uh, density and has a lot of kind of mixed-use activities, then you also increase your access. So all too often when we're thinking about kind of city planning, the focus has been on the first part of the equation, the mobility side. Uh, but in this book, we try to focus more on the second part of the equation and also look at how uh, we can improve like land use and density uh, to improve access instead of just focusing on mobility. Well, that's true. And, you know, I was, I saw that statistic in your book, you know, if we had, uh, if we had as many airplane deaths as we do your automobile statistics, uh, would, would the public stand for it? If we really realized how many car accidents and, uh, deaths and et cetera, would that, uh, do you think that, uh, do you think that people would still uh, drive a car? I, I mean, I, I think people do still, still drive cars. I, I, th I think, uh, it, it's it's an interesting phenomenon because it's a it's a low probability event. So you you know you can you can drive in a relatively dangerous intersection you know a thousand times and and not get in a collision, and maybe the south thousand and one time or first time you you do get in a in a collision. And we we kind of we tend to view that as a, as a rare event. Like uh, we we call them accidents. Um, but I think if you look at them over enough time, enough space, enough people, they're they're really statistical inevitabilities. Like you, I, I can predict how many people will die in the U.S. next year, and I'm not going to be wrong by a lot. I can predict how many will die in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm not going to be wrong by a lot. Uh, when you get down to a smaller geography, like like a specific roadway, uh, you can still make predictions, but there's going to be a lot more variance. But even across cities, you know, I could tell you. Next year, somewhere probably between 10 and 12 uh, people per 100,000 will die in Houston. And only around three or four will die per 100,000 in, in New York City or in Boston. Um, and, and these are, you know, they're, they're not really accidents. They're, they're systematic outcomes based on 
how we've designed and structured our, our cities and, and transportation networks. So, okay, I'm going to give you opportunity because you said here you want to make your case. So um, you're talking about urban recalibration. Um, so how can our cities uh, reset our transportation options and, and what did you find uh, works best? Yeah, we, we, we like the term uh, recalibration instead of like an urban <laughs> revolution. But we, we thought uh, rec- recalibration was a better term. Uh, it's a term that you find in handbooks for precision instruments. Uh, and we thought it was appropriate to indicate more gradual uh, changes for the better instead of this kind of uh, immediate overhaul. So a lot of times this is seen as in binary terms. Oh, we need to uh, go from a, a suburban uh, society to an urban uh, society. Uh, but we thought it was more appropriate to to recalibrate and to change the rules uh, to change uh, the, the codes, all the standards uh, that kind of regulate our cities rather than this complete overall. So to give you an example, if you look at the kind of uh, the average street width for uh, the average street in the United States over the past century has gotten fatter uh, and fatter, right? Streets has, have gotten wider as a result of transportation planners uh, trying to ensure a certain level uh, of safety. But this obviously has promoted uh, throughput, but not necessarily makes these streets more attractive for uh, pedestrians. They become more difficult to cross and, and so on and so on. So what we're suggesting instead to kind of tweak these uh, standards, uh, put roads again <laughs> on, a, on a diet, but gradually uh, so that we can kind of recalibrate our cities for the better. I think the term also really kind of reflects how cities are actually designed. Uh, you know, I, I teach in, a, in an urban planning program, and I think kind of students might come in thinking that they're going to learn how to, you know, sit down and design a city as it should be. Uh, that's not really the case. Cities kind of get get designs very slowly over time. And, you know, through the regulations that we put in place, things like uh, how many parking spaces are required to go with a a housing unit, Um, you know, when and where you decide whether to kind of upgrade an intersection. So let's say there's a, a new development that's being built. We have kind of measures where we go out and we investigate, Okay, we have this brand new development. Uh, how many new vehicle trips do we think it will generate? And then we go and we take those vehicle trips and we kind of spread them through our transportation network at different times of day. And we use a system called a level of service. So level of service kind of ranges from A to F. And we look at, well, okay, do we predict that this might move an intersection from, say, level of service C to D or D to E or E to F? And uh, if that new kind of development does do that, uh, we often tell the developer, oh, you need to go and you need to, uh, you know, widen this intersection or you need to uh, put this kind of new, more high capacity uh, street signalization investment into this one intersection where where we expect level of service to degrade. And, you know, that's that's not really a kind of a planned city, but that is how cities wind up getting planned. And the net result of these policies is we often wind up with kind of 
more roadway capacity than maybe we need. And we wind up turning down projects that might increase accessibility uh, because there may be more people living closer to job centers or we build kind of more jobs in in locations that are are relatively accessible or more offices and retail. I think that those are really good examples. And think about parking alone, right? All the the different zoning codes of cities around uh, the United States and the kind of minimum parking lots they require per, you know, planned uh, housing unit or per per thousand square feet of retail. Uh, if you add it all up, you know, all, all those codes together, if you look at the results of all those codes, uh, you know, although they're meant for, I would say, to protect, uh, protect uh, the public or the common, you end up with a lot of parking lots. The uh, United States has about 800, 800 uh, million parking spaces. Uh, so, you know, each, each parking space is about, uh, if you, yeah, if, if you add them all up, it comes down to an area that is about the size of uh, the state of New Jersey. Uh, it's it's crazy. In some cities alone, about a third of the metropolitan footprint is uh, dedicated to parking. So obviously, uh, you know, we uh, a lot of those spaces could be better used. A lot of these spaces are just uh, empty most of the time. Uh, I think research shows that there's about three parking spots for every uh, car. Uh, so it's 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 really uh, wasteful. And why are we pr- prioritizing kind of storing cars uh, and not kind of putting that very valuable land uh, to use in other ways? And I, uh, yeah. Oh, sorry, Sam. I was just going to say to build on that. I, I think there's an assumption sometimes that uh, cities are the way they are because of uh, markets. That that's really what people want. Uh, but I, I don't think people want their cities to be one-third parking. It's more the result of kind of well-intentioned or relatively well-intentioned rules that when they add up leads to some pretty poor outcomes. So it's, uh, yeah, because I've rarely seen a parking lot full except maybe, well, you know, Christmas or there are some areas that, you know, festivals and stuff that then then you can't find parking. But um so it's just an, an excess of storage for parking and really only at limited times of the day or the year. Yeah. And nicely this year, I don't, I don't know if you saw this, but the Institute of Transportation Engineers, uh, after uh, decades of criticism, uh, disavowed their minimum parking requirements or their, their parking generation guidelines. <laughs> oh, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, so well, kind of going along with that, what you talked about also the book about social capital um, and how does this relate to, to that and, and why is social capital important for mobility? Yeah, so this is something that we don't really uh, talk about when we're, when we're uh, planning neighborhoods. We, we tend to look at other metrics like, oh, you know, how is the real estate value going to increase or, you know, how are the... Uh, uh, how many more cars will be able to circulate through the, the transportation network? Uh, but social capital is a, is a term that uh, sociologists use to talk about sort of the, the, the capital that, that people get from uh, social interaction. Like the number of people they have access to, uh, the, the number of people they can uh, draw from people in their network 
And that is very much a result of their living situation, right? Right. how close they uh, live to other people, uh, but, but also you know, how, how easy uh, they can access these people. And there's great studies that show, uh, for instance, there's one study uh, by Don Appleyard uh, on, uh, on, on kind of livable streets in San Francisco that shows that uh, communities in which you actually have uh, a lot of kind of busy roads uh, with a lot of traffic, that the kind of social network is a lot less uh, developed as communities that have uh, fewer uh, traffic and fewer cars. Uh, and it's, it's really quite marvelous that, uh, you know, the, these, these places where there's uh, fewer cars that these uh, communities can really, uh, really thrive. So I think that the term social capital kind of reflects that. It's not something that we can easily uh, measure. And in this case, the study was really built on uh, interviewing people, asking them, oh, who do you know in the street? Uh, but the results were really astounding in, in that, uh, you know, if you, if you look at a busy street in terms of traffic and, and, a, and a street that's not busy, I think the difference is, is massive several times. They, they will know several times more people in a quiet street uh, than in a busy street. So again, you know, mobility sometimes gets into the way of making great places and also uh, of allowing people to, to connect with another. Eric, I, I I think that's um, you know com- completely the case. Um, I guess I, I I would just build on that a little by saying you know the the argument isn't that uh, people who who live in in um, areas with kind of big highways and big arterials that they don't have social capital. Of course, they have uh, social capital and they I- interact with people. But they're they're less likely to get to know their their immediate neighborhoods. They're less likely to kind of build that that community around space. That's part of making a great neighborhood or a great place to to be. Um. So, will you know? I was this coaching something like in the headlines right now. Like today, they were talking about like all the smog in New Delhi. Um. And uh, so, how can we take cities that like you were talking about? Did think about you know they're always evolving. Um, and how can we, um, or urban planners or your book, did you find that you can start evolving them to be more walkable and to being, having more social capital and being connected? Uh, how can we do it? I think increasing walkability in a place like Delhi is, is really absolutely critical. Uh, unfortunately, I think that there's this general tendency to kind of view, uh, in these spaces, um, Pedestrian activity is kind of a, an option of last resort, and there's this assumption that as soon as people have have a little bit more money, uh, they'll switch to a bus, or they'll switch to a motorcycle, or they'll switch to a, a, a private car. And, and at the end of the day, I think the kind of investments in in pedestrian infrastructure only get you know made in in touristic areas, or or in particularly kind of uh, upscale neighborhoods where a, a lot of people already do have access to a to a private vehicle, um, it, it's really quite quite a challenge, I think, to change um, the national kind of investment and um, and and regulation priorities, which really favor uh, vehicular mobility. And I think the end result is that you know, as people 
it, it becomes this kind of self self reinforcing prophecy uh, because you make the space to walk around so unpleasant that really p- if people can avoid walking they do and it's really a shame because this is often occurring in very dense cities that that would other otherwise could be quite quite pleasant and and, and easy to to walk in uh, of course the big disadvantage of walking is you're you're not going to get very far um so you know walking alone is probably not going to be you know the solution to everyone's accessibility needs uh but it's certainly underappreciated and underfunded in places like like Delhi uh even in places that are kind of more uh transit and and automobile reliable uh, reliant like Mexico City uh you still have you know around a third of people getting to work or 25% of people getting to work by foot and even more of other types of trips so it's a really important part of um metropolitan travel and it's one that i think really ought to be encouraged uh because it, it does kind of interact with great spaces uh in areas where people walk a lot you tend to have thriving local retail uh areas where people walk a lot you tend to generate very little pollution uh so big advantages and and it'd be nice i i think this is an area where kind of that recalibration is is greatly needed to favor uh walkability and to really favor pedestrians um Unfortunately, in a lot of spaces, uh, you know, e- e- even in the U.S., uh, pedestrian fatality rates are pretty high. They've been increasing, uh, even as kind of overall vehicular fatalities ha- have decreased or tended to decrease recently. We- we've seen a pretty big bump in pedestrian fatalities, and they make up an even greater share of fatalities in in um, in places like Delhi. Stefan, I'll give you a chance. Yeah, I think. Obviously, there there needs to be a more of an emphasis on on, on walkability and improving sidewalks and in, in developing countries. You know, very often there's not even a, a paved sidewalk. But apart from that, I think you know one particular challenge that some developing countries have is that a lot of the new development is very suburban in nature, and you know, there's some research that points that as kind of incomes go up, there are uh, the the densities, they go down uh, because sim- simply people have more money and so they want more space and they, they move to the suburbs. So I, I don't think that this is a kind of an inevitability. I think uh, it would be good if you could somehow uh, constrain the... Uh, development and really try to even for the new development try to create more kind of compact and relatively medium to high density uh, types of development partly because you need that level of density to uh, be able to kind of fund and justify public transit Um, if you look at a city like new york it's it's very uh, high density uh, but that means it has a a lot of tax payers per kind of square mile. So it can justify uh, a, a heavy investment in, um, in, in, in transit. The same for uh, a city like Barcelona, which is relatively high density. So you, you simply have more kind of a tax basis to pay for uh, common infrastructure. But when uh, the area is, is lower in density, uh, that becomes a lot harder to, uh, to justify. So I think the uh, again we go back to the equation. Uh, you know we can fix uh, or, or, or think about mobility, but 
we should also really think about uh, proximity as a way to improve uh, access. And that means uh, we should be thinking about urban design and uh, you know having densities and maybe growth boundaries so we can keep our cities more uh, compact and we kind of avoid the sprawl that makes walkability, but also investments uh, in uh, public transportation very difficult. Um, so, so now that we have, you know, like here in the United States, we, we're car dependent. What can we do now to um, to try and uh, make our mobility better, increase our social capital? And also, I mean, you know, for small businesses too, you know, having, you're right, having walkability and having people walk by is much better than having people drive by. Um, so what kind of grid, uh, how can we like reshape our grids to slowly transform our cities to something better? I think there are, there are a few different kind of uh, policy directions that it could take. Um, you know, one, one of the first things I think that makes sense to do is, is uh, wherever possible, kind of remove remove the regulations or reduce the impact of regulations that kind of uh, force outcomes that are car oriented. Uh, so I think that's things like uh, minimum lot sizes, uh, minimum uh numbers of parking requirements. Um, I think that that's a pretty kind of good place to start. Um, we also wind up, you know, having regulations where let's say you have a, you know, a, you know, this happens in a lot of towns. There's a very, very kind of low number of residents or relatively low number of residents, but a big suburban office park. And the residents of that suburban area really don't want, you know, more residents to move in. Uh, kind of, you know, thinking about their tax base, uh, public schools, things like that. The the fiscal impacts of, say, a new apartment building are not great for, for that city. Uh, but the fiscal impacts of another office park are terrific. Uh, so we wind up having these situations where um, cities have this pretty strong incentive to keep out residents, uh, particularly relatively or poorer residents than kind of their typical, uh, you know, resident of whatever municipality it happens to be. And at the same time, they really want jobs. And so we can wind up where just everyone kind of commuting to an office park is coming from pretty long distances and other areas and kind of reducing the amount of regulations that, that, you know, prevent the construction of denser housing close to job centers, I think is, is a really good uh, approach. Um, I think also probably from an investment standpoint, uh, even though the amount that we invest in roadways has really decreased, uh, we're, we're still probably over-investing and in widening arterials and building new freeways and widening freeways. Uh, they're just not associated with anything close to the economic benefits that, that they cost. Um, and if, if you look at kind of the almost any measure of, of economic performance and you compare it against like roadways per capita, uh, there's an inverse relationship. So actually our kind of most um, economically productive places are, are not the places where we're building highways, uh, where we're building kind of large roadway networks. Um, and I think we kind of have to think about, well, well, why are we spending all this money on all this roadway? And if at the end of the day, our answer is to kind of serve traffic, like the uh, original highway capacity manual stated, I think we really need to rethink our, our, our priorities. Um, and 
again, I, I think kind of on the, the public regulation, public investment side, uh, you know, there, there's an argument for doing less. I, I think probably we, we do too much and, and recalibrating involves um, deregulating land uses and, and spending less on, on public roadway. Yeah, I, I can give you a couple examples from New York City. Um, so the first is is the uh, the construction of, of bike lanes. Before, maybe up to like five, six years ago, it was uh, almost impossible to bike through the city and people would declare, hey, you crazy saying, you know, you would bike through the Manhattan, for instance, uh, to go uh, from place to place. But uh, with, with Mayor Bloomberg, who uh, rolled out miles and miles of bike lanes, uh, suddenly now in New York becomes more uh, bike friendly and more and more people are choosing uh, to take a bicycle instead of taking uh, a, a taxi or, or a car. The second thing that the city is doing is upzoning in some areas, uh, allowing for higher densities, for instance, in, in Manhattan. Uh, but very importantly, it does that through providing economic incentives to developers to improve or make transit improvements. Uh, so, for instance, uh, one Vanderbilt is, is uh, the second tallest tower right now in, in New York. It's almost complete, completed next year. Uh, that project, uh, the developer, SL Green, uh, was able to build a little higher because they uh, paid for $220 million of uh, public infrastructure. Uh, so they, they, they paid for uh, subway improvements. Uh, so that kind of shows how there's a really a synergy between uh, public transportation and, and urban development that uh, the cities can take advantage of. And, and New York is starting to do that now. Obviously, it's nowhere near what some cities are doing, like, Hong Kong, where you have the uh, MTR or the, the railway authority, that's also a real estate developer. Uh, and that really creates these kind of seamless connections between public transit and, and uh, kind of the urban development on top. And, and not only that, it really kind of creates this great mechanism in which by uh, in, when you have a, the same entity that can build the railway station uh, can then kind of capture the value of that uh, increase in property value as a result of that real estate by actually building uh, building uh, towers uh, on top. So it's not uh, yet as transit-oriented development as uh, a city like uh, Hong Kong is, but at least it's, it's getting there through these uh, economic incentives to developers. Um, so... Now, so I know Robert's not here, but what do you think that he would have to say about um, creating better economies and mobility? And and what was his goals? Do you think in this book? I'll let you go. Somebody. I'm I'm sorry. I'm trying to think. Uh, I I I don't think I could really answer answer for him. You know, I I, I I guess in many ways, I, I think for him, uh, the book was about summarizing a lot of a lot of the work that he's been doing. Um, you know, professionally and academically over over the last um, over the last uh, two or three decades, and really really getting it into kind of a digestible format that's um, you know geared towards a, a slightly different audience from kind of the audience that that um, 
you know, he and Stefan and I typically typically interact with. Uh, so I think that was a big part of his motivation. Uh, I think also just kind of a, you know, as an opportunity to to reflect on his career um, as an opportunity to kind of synthesize a lot of the the work that he and others have done and, and try and frame it in in, in terms of, um, you know, this this urban recalibration that that um, he wrote about quite a bit in the introduction to the book and the and the first chapter. I think that that was really his primary motivation. I, you know, I'm guessing these are from my conversations with him. Um, uh, unfortunately, I, he is he is traveling. Um, so, yeah, I thought I thought the 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 book really kind of sums up what uh, what he has been doing the last 20, 30 years. So, for people who don't know, Bob Severo is really one of the key figures uh, in the kind of transportation. Uh, intellectual discipline and and most famous for his work on transit-oriented development. And I think it's really, the book really does a great job at making the argument for this. Uh, And I think that's the first part of the book. So the first chapter is on, you know, how, uh, how going beyond mobility creates better uh, environments, better economies, and, and better communities. So it's really summing up the social, the economic, and the environmental benefits of this approach in a very kind of clear argument. But then the rest of the book is focused on uh, kind of concrete examples. And they really cut across scales. They go from the very small, like, the, like a, parklet, a, a parking lot conversion, to mediums like like corridors or, or road dieting to the very large uh, regional kind of policies that could help promote this, like urban growth boundaries. So I think it does a good job at capturing all of these different methods from different geographies. And then it ends with uh, kind of going and, and looking forward. And Eric uh, did a lot of work here uh, in, in looking at contexts that are often ignored, like developing uh, countries, uh, and looking at kind of emerging technologies like, uh, obviously, autonomous vehicles, ride-sharing, and how all of this will impact uh, our cities. So I think the book does a really good job in just summing up the argument, showing examples, and giving us a sense of you know where this is headed and where this should go. Uh, and I think you can only get to that after <laughs> lots and lots of experience. Uh, and I think Bob certainly has that. Uh, well, in that case, like, can you guys give me a, a nice case study in this book to talk about? Did you think a city that, that does it all well? Well, I think we can go back to, to Hong Kong. I think Hong Kong is a, is a great example. It has uh, 90% of all trips in Hong Kong are done by public transport. Uh, which is an incredible uh, figure. And it's really because there's a relatively high density and there's a seamless uh, transportation, public transportation network. It is so well done that if you look at a typical advertising for a restaurant, it doesn't tell you the street address. It will tell you the exit of the subway you should take uh, to get to that uh restaurants uh 
it is so well done that if you want to meet with your friends in a particular station, there's numbers right in front of the the different tracks, so you can meet them there. The the uh, the transport network, the the subway is air conditioned. There's Wi-Fi. You can have phone calls, uh, and it's seamlessly integrated in all the buildings. Uh, we did a, a skyscraper there. It's the tallest building, the International Commerce Center. Uh, and it stands right on top of uh, Kowloon Station. So if you wanted to go from there to the airport, you could get there in 25 minutes. Uh, and and this whole this tower is just one of several towers. They're all standing on top of that uh, complex, and it literally contains like 30,000 people, all on you know a little over a square mile. So I think it's a very very good example. I, th- I think it's important also to think about kind of uh, city starting places. So, uh, you know, if you're thinking about a city like like Amsterdam, uh, obviously it's starting from a very different place than somewhere like uh, Tyson's Corner, which is, you know, outside of Washington, D.C., kind of one of the, the quintessential uh, edge cities where, you had a, a bunch of uh, office parks kind of locating and, and not much there there. And I think it's a pretty good example of a place that's really tried to um, become more of a place, to become more urban, to become more about, you know, uh, to create more of a sense of identity. And I, I think it's a pretty successful example. I think, um, you know, an example that gets talked about quite a lot is uh, is Bogota. And you know, I think we we actually criticize the the BRT investments in Bogota a little bit in the book uh, because they're so focused on mobility, so focused on the throughput of passengers that that we kind of argue that there's some some missed opportunities to um, uh, for placemaking and for for a stronger connection between stations and, and what surrounds them. Uh, that said, I think that that's a city that also did kind of a tremendous job of going from kind of a a, a base where it was very difficult to walk on sidewalks. You know, there were there were cars cars parked everywhere, despite really kind of high high rates of of pedestrian pedestrians in the in the city. And then to really kind of shift priorities to say, hey, we're not just going to let people park wherever. We're going to take away some space that's kind of used on these really congested streets uh, from the local buses and also from um, from drivers, and, and we're, we're going to turn it into kind of this really uh, rapid transit corridor, and we're going to put in all this other kind of uh, softer infrastructure like bike lanes and bikeways and, and programs to encourage people to kind of get outside and exercise on the weekends. And I, I think, yeah, there, there are some things about it that aren't perfect. Obviously, you know, uh, this, this is a podcast about architecture. Tyson's Corner is probably not a a place that most of your listeners want to go to and spend the afternoon there. But it's a place that's really kind of both are places that have really uh, actively uh, worked to transform themselves. And I think I think are good examples of, of some of the things that we talk about in the book. Oh, well, that's okay. Well, on this channel, I'm including, you know, architecture, urban design, landscape architecture, it all goes hand in hand. Well, I'm not sure Tyson's Corner would be, you know, it's it's not it's probably not the first place people go to visit when they go to metropolitan Washington, DC. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that is a, maybe that is a great destination for architects. You tell me, Stefan, I, I, I know there's some interest in planning yet, now, but, but uh, it's, it's, it's getting there. But you know, <laughs> the interest really relates to the fact that it has gone from this 
quintessential edge city to to changing its policies to trying to to transform and and if all we're transforming is is you know relatively wealthy parts of Manhattan you know old yeah. parts of Boston that then yeah then that, that that's a problem and that's not really what what we yeah. wanted to write this book about yeah well, that's okay because uh, I'm landscape, and then uh, <laughs> I'm, well, I, I'm not criticizing. By the way, I mean I, I, I would lump myself in that if if I'm going to Tyson's Corner, it's because I'm interested in it uh, from more of a research perspective, not because it's a a place that I'm particularly attracted to. And I, if, if I'm being honest. Uh, Why do like you talked about? You know, landscaping. You know, in some of these parking lots, and uh, you know boosting ecology a little bit, you know, it, 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 it all has to work together. I agree. And at the margin, you know, there, there are shifts there, you know, places are either, you know, nothing's really stagnant. You know, maybe a few things are, but in general, places are either becoming better or they're becoming worse. And then what, what can we do to, to, uh, to make it better? Well, I think it's a terrific example. And, and other places that are like the Tyson's Corner of, you know, a decade or two ago can, can really learn from a place like Tyson's Corner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I want to thank you, gentlemen, for being here today. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and uh, I know we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, well, we'll start with uh, Eric. Uh, what are your uh, projects right now? What are you working on? Uh, I'm working on a few different projects. I'm kind of in the beginning of starting a, a book project on on traffic safety in the United States. Um, the focus is really on kind of outside of the vehicle. So we, we've had a lot of improvements in traffic safety that relate to the vehicle, but uh, not as many successes when it comes to kind of outside the vehicle. So thinking a bit more about uh, what types of spaces are safer, what types of spaces are more dangerous, and how can we make each of these types of spaces a little bit safer? Uh, I also have a project where I'm kind of working. Uh, this is we're really in the beginning of the process, but we're looking at uh, the, the redesign of uh, SEPTA's bus networks and uh, working with the city of Philadelphia, uh, just kind of kicking off a project to think about uh, how do we redesign them to be as pro-poor a- as possible? Um, you know, Philadelphia is one of kind of the, it's sometimes referred to as the poorest large city and uh, making sure that kind of the benefits of, of redesigning the network to make it more efficient is really uh, directed towards um, low-income communities. Uh, well, again, uh, thank you so much. You'll have to keep me posted on your on your next books and uh, projects. And um, again, this is Trisha Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books and Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And again, today's book is Beyond Mobility, Planning Cities for People and Places, published by Island Press in 2017 by Robert Cervero, Al Stefan, and uh, Stefan Al. I did that last time, didn't I? Stefan Al <laughs> and uh, Eric Guerra. <laughs> thank you so much, John. So, thank you so much, gentlemen. Thank, thank you, Tricia. Thank you, Tricia. It was a true pleasure.